Hello, my name is Dr. Craig Katz. I am the Vice Chair of MISNI's Emergency Preparedness and Disaster and Terrorism Response Committee. Today I'm joined by Dr. Haley K. Cotter, a member of this committee and co-author with me of a chapter for the new edition of Disaster Psychiatry that focuses on climate change and disaster psychiatry prevention. We will be discussing the myriad deleterious effects climate change can have and already has had on mental health, and we'll also be talking about what we think we might be able to do about it. In recent years, disasters have come to be recognized as acts of society that are the result of human actions. The seemingly constant barrage of reports on catastrophic or nearly catastrophic world events effectively confirms this, and certainly climate change fits right into this. So I'm going to jump into our dialogue with Dr. Kay Cotterer. Doctor, can you give more detail on your research into the resultant mental health impact of climate change? Sure. I think to start, it's actually helpful to break down climate change. Climate change is such a broad and vast topic. And one way that it's broken down in a lot of the literature that looks at mental health and climate change is sort of by time frame. So we have acute disasters, we have subacute, and then we have this more existential or chronic disasters. So when we speak about acute disasters, we're thinking of sudden events. They come on unexpectedly, things like tornadoes, floods, fires, hurricanes, tsunamis. In the second category of subacute disasters, These are more long-term droughts or heat waves, things that last a little bit longer in terms of their impact. And finally, in the last category are more existential or chronic disasters. And these really highlight more permanent changes in our physical and social environment. So things that result in displacement of communities or longer lasting changes in agricultural patterns. And a lot of the existing literature actually focuses on the connection between direct exposure to specifically acute disasters and ensuing mental health consequences. So if you look at all of the studies, around 25 to 50 percent of people exposed to these acute disasters will actually go on to experience negative mental health outcomes. And when we say negative mental health outcomes, what we mean are things like anxiety disorders, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, or even acute stress reactions if the symptoms are a shorter time frame, substance use disorders, complicated grief, even suicidal ideation. And I think what's important to think about as well is the risk factors that might push someone into developing those negative outcomes. And research shows things like direct exposure, whether it be yourself or a family member to injury, to death, that can be a major risk factor, as well as socioeconomic status, younger age, and of course, things that are a little bit more obvious, like history of psychiatric illness or family history. There's actually a lot less research that looks at mental health impact of climate change in the more subacute or kind of long-term chronic disasters. But Largely, what we see there is also this idea that these long-term changes can be thought of as just accumulations of small traumas and adversities. So forcing people to work in more extreme conditions or worsening economic conditions, displacement from homes, all of these things can actually go on to lead to further helplessness and depression and anxiety. And it's not always so clear cut between these kind of three categories. My research background 
is actually spends a lot of time looking into the Fukushima 311 triple disaster, which included a tsunami, an earthquake, and a nuclear explosion. So what actually started as very much an acute disaster is now something that has been ongoing for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you see massive effects from these acute disasters that actually transform something that can be very sudden and short into very long-term impact. Yeah, and I think actually that is an issue in disasters in general, right? Uh, We tend, certainly in the public's attention, we tend to focus on the acute aftermath and tend to lose track of the long-term and I think actually what distinguishes climate change also is it's a, it's sort of a slow moving train wreck, I guess. Like it's happening here, it's happening there. What more major changes in climate may be coming down the road are to be determined, although we could forecast it. But so there's also this sort of slow, long-term ramp up as well as the long-term consequences of any one climate event. So we really, I think, need to have the big picture with climate change, probably more so than any other type of disaster that I can think of. Yeah. And These acute disasters, I mean, of course, they're not new, right? We've had these sort of disasters forever. But what's changing and what's important is that we're seeing them occur more frequently and the effects are lasting longer. Absolutely. I think when you get snow in L.A., something's going on, right? Exactly. Can you provide some details on a set of newly defined conditions that are called the psychoterratic syndromes? Yeah, so psychoterratic syndrome, sort of as... As the name suggests, this is stemming from an idea that the changing environment, our changing environment, is already causing a sense of stress that's really impacting the way that individuals interact with their communities and their environment. So when we talk about psychoterratic syndromes, there's a few different terms that you'll see in the literature, the most common being eco-anxiety, so specifically anxiety associated with the threat of climate change. The APA actually defines it as a chronic fear of environmental doom. And many studies acknowledge the association of eco-anxiety with a whole host of adverse emotional reactions, irritability, sadness, numbness, helplessness, hopelessness, guilt, frustration, anger. Another term you might see is eco-paralysis, Right. So these complex feelings of not being able to take effective action against climate change, almost people feeling paralyzed against doing anything. There's ecological grief, grief felt in responses to losses in the natural world, the way that we interact with our surrounding environment. And then solastasia, which is distress and isolation caused by the gradual removal of solace from one's home environment. So all of these different terms are sort of under this umbrella idea of these psychoterratic syndromes. Yeah, that's interesting because they certainly potentially, these syndromes take us out of our usual DSM-5 sort of mindset, right? They don't necessarily fit any one diagnosis, at least as psychiatrists that we're used to addressing. But they certainly seem like they would be quite clinically relevant, right? right? Cause a lot of suffering. Yeah, and I think as psychiatrists, we research and talk a lot and and ask our patients a lot about triggers, right? Like what might have led to the anxiety or to the depression? Um, You know, what was the trauma that led to the PTSD? Mm -hmm. And in this group of conditions, what we're really looking at are triggers that stem from our natural environment, from climate change, from the way that our relationship with our surrounding environment and nature has changed. Absolutely. 
I also think the fact that these seem to exist outside of our usual diagnostic system, at least in psychiatry, might also suggest that tending to them, helping people with them may actually fall across a range of professions and people on this earth and not just mental health professionals, right? That there may be different people that can pitch in to make those things go better, feel better for people, I think. Yeah. Sort of a related question is, you know, what groups of people have been most negatively impacted by climate change? I think this is a really crucial and an important topic to, to think about and to discuss because while climate change is a collective challenge, it's actually already begun to really highlight and intensify existing inequalities. And that's on a global level, but also on a, a more community and individual level. So when thinking about this on a global level, poorer countries will be hit the hardest. And some of that is because their proximity to tropical and coastal regions, but it's also because they're less developed infrastructure, limited access to resources at baseline. And that's actually despite data showing that they emit only a fraction of the total greenhouse gases. And when we zoom in a little bit to a more community or individual level, even within wealthier countries, already marginalized and disadvantaged minorities are more susceptible to the impacts of climate change. And there's a lot of reasons for this, partly because they're often excluded in planning processes. Perhaps they're more impacted by food insecurity. They can't rely on electricity in the same way. They're the ones that are going to be most impacted by changing agricultural conditions, weakened infrastructure, and inaccessible health care. So I think taking all of this together as we continue to talk about this and to research it, it's really, really crucial that we center equity in the climate crisis conversation. And we really work to develop policies and paradigms that ensure equitable distribution of both the burdens and the prevention of climate change. I think one other group that's just worth mentioning are families and children. And in a way, it makes intuitive sense, right? Younger individuals, younger children are going to have more years impacted by climate change. But also, research shows that the well-being of children can be profoundly impacted given that they just interact with the environment in very unique ways, even the idea of play, right? Playing in our natural world. Children also rely on stressed adults and their ability to adapt is a lot more limited. You've just made a lot of excellent points, so many of which I'd like to speak to, but I think the idea of climate change you know, disproportionately affecting, I guess, you know, low, low middle income countries and more marginalized communities is, is so important. I just think about a responded part of a mental health response after the South Asia tsunami that happened in late 2004 and went to Sri Lanka. And what you saw there, of course, is the, all the folks who were living along the coasts got hit hard, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, partly they were living there because that's where their jobs were. They were largely fishermen. And while they were gorgeous beaches, you know, the wealthy folks were not living down by the water, right? And what were really makeshift, fairly not, not very stable structures that were also going to be more vulnerable. So, you know, I think by virtue of the fact that a lot of low and middle income countries, you know, the economy is, is tied to the agriculture. So the, mm -hmm. the people are interact more with the environment to begin with live in the environment more, the natural environment, rely on it more for their livelihoods. 
that in and of itself makes them more vulnerable on top of the fact that they may simply live in areas that are going to be more vulnerable to uh, things like, you know, tsunamis, et cetera, and live in structures that are just more likely to fall down. Mm-hmm. Right. And an earthquake or well, exactly. earthquake wouldn't more a hurricane, for example. Right. So there, there are so many reasons. So the the equity issue, I think, is enormous. And I, I think that's a, that's a tremendous point. So thank you. Thank you for, for pointing that out. I also hope I mean, your point about kids, I think the fact that our children are going to be disproportionately affected, one, because they're going to be around longer than us, but two, they're going to just be around longer, right? So experiences more, I would hope would motivate people to do more, right? I mean, we keep yeah. talking about our children, right? And the effects of climate change. So you definitely hope that that's going to be a motivator. Yeah, absolutely. In that respect, to address the question about proactive climate change efforts, what proactive climate change mitigation efforts can, can people participate in specifically to improve mental health? This is a really interesting question because we just spent several minutes talking about, you know, the mental health outcomes that come from climate change. But now we're sort of flipping that question around and we're saying, how can our engagement in climate change mitigation efforts actually improve our mental health? And I think this relates a lot to what you were just saying about people feeling motivated because of their children. I mean, climate change actually is very unique and it's a very difficult topic. And I think there's a few reasons for that. On the one hand, many people feel that climate change is just like almost insurmountable, fatalistic in the scope of its impact. And then also there's this overwhelming sense that the consequences of climate change may not actually directly impact us in the present, but our children or future generations. So the question then becomes like, how do we motivate for something that is both future facing and very difficult to detect on a day-to-day basis, right? And in many ways that can make us feel less responsible for actually mitigating any further change. But studies show that individuals who engage in climate change efforts or ecotherapy, which is another cool term uh, to describe this, they actually report positive changes in mood, attention, cognition, and resilience. And there's actually direct correlation between happiness and environmental action. So in a way, engaging in these efforts, it can help foster a sense of personal meaning. It can promote altruism. It can promote empathy. And it can actually unite people. And that can be uniting people from across the world, across the country, people from different backgrounds, but uniting them nevertheless against some form of like a common sort of like enemy in a way. And I think this is, this is pretty amazing because what we're really saying is that engaging in climate change mitigation efforts, not only we attempt to help the environment, but we can actually also help our own psyches and our relationships with the communities around the world. Yeah, I mean, I I think the point about altruism in particular stands out to me because, you know, usually when you give, you get, right? Mm -hmm. It may be intangible, right? But I think, you know, the idea that some of this may be affecting someone on the other side of the world far more than us sitting here, let's say, in New York or in some future generation, right? You really do have to think about giving towards others. And the fact that we know that altruism actually benefits the giver, and not just the receiver, I think, is extremely important for people to keep in mind. Yeah, so doing would be good. And also, I think, you know, try to overlap major topics in the world right now, or at least, let's say, even here in America, right, could 
the cohesion that comes from fighting climate change, stemming changes that the planet is facing, could that help promote social co cohesion in a mm -hmm. time when we have so much of a political fracture in our country? I mean, I just wonder, right? Can we, you know, sort of use one problem to solve another problem, right? That I mean, maybe I'm engaging in, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, idealism here, but 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 why not? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a hopeful but potential great outlook. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I think that the talk about altruism, and I guess I'm being an optimist here, gets us into, I think, a very related topic, which is the role that resilience and resiliency training may play in preparing for disasters. Can you comment on that? Sure. So resilience, I mean, this is, it's a hot topic right now. And I think the way we understand resilience is really shifting. So what used to be thought of as a almost like stable trait, like you are a resilient person or you are not, is now actually much more understood to be a very like dynamic ability that can be practiced and cultivated through evidence-based interventions. And there's no single definition of resilience, but generally it's thought of as our ability to bounce back from tragedy, from trauma, from a disaster. And the key factors that are involved in resilience are things like optimism, cognitive flexibility, altruism, as we just spoke about, role models, facing fears, developing active coping skills, social support, physical well-being. These are all important in promoting resilience. And there's a, a huge field of research that is developing evidence-based interventions to try to promote resilience. So I think the question then becomes, how do we take those interventions and sort of shape them or morph them to be more directly related to the environment. And we can talk about a few examples here. I think one very easy to understand and simple one is role models, right? So finding a climate change role model to actually emulate. And by doing so, by identifying these individuals with beliefs and attitudes and behaviors that inspire us, we can actually follow in their pathways towards meaningful action. Another exercise that I actually really love is something called the three good things. And this is an exercise that's meant to promote sort of gratitude and positive affect. And the idea is that you write down three good things every single day and why. Why you're able to experience those good things. So if we take that and we target it specifically at the environment, we have people write down good things about the environment, things they're grateful for, and why. And what evidence shows is that this exercise can actually allow for a much greater appreciation and savoring. And that might push us towards changing our behavior in the environment. And I think the last example to talk about that might promote resilience factors like meaning or purpose or social support is rather simple. Just volunteering, contributing to organizations that align with your values. And by committing to such a mission, it can actually help strengthen our sense of purpose and agency and also foster a community or support from others with shared goals. So there's tons of exercises out there, but the idea and the question becomes, how do we take those exercises, cater them specifically to climate change, to our environment, to help promote individuals' resilience? Yeah, it's very interesting. So by engaging in resilience-promoting behaviors that have a positive impact on the climate change, 
you're both promoting your own resilience, but actually, in a sense, if I, you know, if I follow correctly, you're actually promoting the Earth's resilience at the same time, right? You're helping the Earth bounce back from you know, the slow slide into just awful awfulness, right? I think so. You're kind of doing both, I would think. If do, do you agree? Exactly. That's that's the intention. Right. Absolutely. Well. One last question. I mean, that, that was talking about people in general, but with our medical audience in particular, what can physicians and other health and mental health professionals do to address the mental health impact and issues surrounding climate change? So this is, this is certainly the crucial question. And I think one that, to be honest, we're still trying to answer, to answer in the right way, in the most impactful way. When I think about what we can do as physicians, as mental health professionals, I think it's helpful to frame it as what we can do in the community and then maybe what we can also do kind of within the walls of the hospital or the physician office. So from a community perspective, I think it all comes down to outreach, outreach into our communities, to educate people, to get into schools, to help influence curriculums. Um, So there's a degree of education on what's really happening in regards to climate change, but also perhaps a degree of education into what we can do to help, what we can do to boast, as you were saying, our own resilience, the resilience of the environment. I think we ourselves can also act as role models, as climate ambassadors. So that's that's looking at it from kind of a community perspective, going beyond the walls of the hospital. But I think the next question is, well, what can we do in our professional roles? And this is a difficult question to answer. But I think one thing to envision is how can we incorporate climate change and psychotratic syndromes into our patient evaluations? So one idea is when we talk about a review of systems, sort of a head to toe check on how patients are doing, it's probably worth asking about these psychotratic syndromes. When we think about a social history or a spiritual history, again, it's probably worth digging into how our patients interact with their natural environments and how this might be impacting their day-to-day life and both their mental and physical health. I think simple things like adding resources to our office spaces, printing out information in our aftercare summaries for patients, that can be really helpful too. And then I guess the last idea, and I think this is probably easier to implement from a psychiatric perspective because we see patients a little bit more frequently, whether it be in weekly therapies or biweekly. Maybe there's a world in which there could be a national campaign where psychiatrists dedicate one session a year to just focusing on climate change. Again, you know, we still have to brainstorm how, how do we take this as an example and how can all physicians do something like this? But think we have great influence in the way that we interact with patients. Mm-hmm. So how can we really take that influence to lead to meaningful change? Absolutely. Yeah. And it certainly probably would be easier for, let's say, psychiatrists, mental health professionals to do something like that. Because we, we, you and I both being a psychiatrist, you know, we tend to see our patients more than a lot of the health professionals. So it'd be easier. But somewhere in there, I think, is an idea for all health professionals to do something about it, I think, in their offices. And I think also, I think what you broadly we're just saying is this kind of using our bully pulpit as, mm-hmm. as as health professionals, as physicians in particular, you know, when we have generally are pretty well respected. And when we talk about things, people tend to listen more than the average person. So I think applying ourselves to this 
would really, I think, make a big difference both inside and, at, and outside of our offices. And I do really like the idea of taking an environmental history, like our history of present and history taking that we take in medicine is standardized, history of present illness, social history, family history, but actually changing it up a little bit and adding environmental history. How has that person in the last year, for example, been interacting with their environment would really, I think, be a bit of a sea change possibly in how we even go about interacting with our patients and, and ideally make a difference in the world around us. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing to just add to that is as part of our responsibility as physicians, we also want to make sure that our patients are staying safe and staying healthy. And in light of what we spoke around, given the fact that we already know that climate change is going to have kind of an unfair impact on different populations, I think it's also up to us to make sure that our patients, like during hot weathers, are surviving the hot weather. Do they have access to fans, to AC, in the opposite during cold weather, right? We know that people are impacted by our changing environment. So from a purely just sort of physical safety perspective as well, making sure we're asking these important questions and providing our patients with resources that can help them. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And not getting into sort of clinical tunnel vision and just sort of focusing on you know, the person's labs or their weight or which, et cetera, but thinking about their connection with the world out there, right? Which we probably should do more of in general, climate change or not, right? So think about their, their living circumstances. Well, that uh, I think concludes our questions and discussion. We hope that uh, helped our audience to think proactively about climate change and health and mental health. And we look forward to any feedback and we look forward to hopefully uh, this making a little bit of difference in how you go about your professional and personal lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having me.